Good morning. It's great to see all of you again this morning. I don't know why it is, but it, I have noticed the last uh, two or three weeks I seem to be moving further back and further over toward the window, and I suspect I may be on outside the window. I don't know if that has any meaning or not, but uh, but for some reason we're, we're migrating here. Uh, we're in in Second Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 15 this morning. And as usual, we'll begin by reading the scripture, and then we'll look at our discussion questions. And again, the purpose of approaching it this way is to first of all call out uh, some of the major points that will help us to understand the passage as a whole and to give you the opportunity ahead of the class to look at those and be familiar with what those major points are. So we'll read the scripture this morning, and then we'll plunge into our discussion questions, and then we'll look at the passage as a whole uh, according to the outline that we have. So let's begin by reading the scripture. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 15. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, if in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants do also, if they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the promise of your spirit who will guide us into all truth. May he be here with us this morning and guide us 
and open our understanding about this passage and teach us what we ought to do as a consequence of having studied it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you'll remember at the end of chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, Paul has just accused the the interlopers, these these, uh, preachers who have moved into Corinth after he left Corinth and went to Ephesus. He has accused them of being uh, self-commending, of self-commendation. They are boasting about themselves. They're boasting about how good they are as speakers, and they're denouncing Paul for not being a good speaker. And in fact, they're accusing Paul of not even being an apostle, a true apostle, whereas they claim that for themselves. And Paul is concerned, as we've read here, that the Corinthians are going to be deceived. And so he is defending uh, his own apostleship, not for his own sake, but he is commending his apostleship for God's sake, because he is a minister of God who has been sent by God for a purpose. He says he has a stewardship, and so when that stewardship is being rejected, it's not so much that they are rejecting him, but they are rejecting the message of God sent by God through him. So he he charges them with commending themselves and boasting about their own abilities. But now he turns right around at the beginning of chapter 11 and says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. What Paul is about to do is commend himself. And he says that he's been forced into this. He doesn't want to do it, but he has to because he has to defend his apostleship and therefore the message of the gospel that he has been charged with delivering. And in this, these first 15 verses here, we're going to see his introduction to what has become known as his foolish speech, beginning in uh, verse 16 of 11 and continuing on into 12 that we'll look at next week. So he calls it foolishness because he concludes at the end of 10 that if anyone boasts, their boast should be in God and not in themselves. And we looked at the Jeremiah passage, you may remember, that says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the rich man in his riches, but if anyone boasts, boast in me, God says. Boast in me. I am the, and, and elsewhere, he's, he's, uh, he's their maker, and he's the one that should be boasted in. And now Paul is going to do exactly what he said he shouldn't do, but he gives a defense of why he is being forced to do that. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning. And we'll go ahead and move into our questions now. We had four of them. Question number one says in verse two, what biblical idea is Paul alluding to when he says, well, let me just read all of verse two. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband I, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, what's Paul alluding to here? That's an idea that runs through both the Old Testament and the New Testament, a metaphor for, well, you tell me, Mike. That the church is the bride of Christ. That the church is the bride of Christ. Now, it's stated a little bit differently, same metaphor, I think, in the Old Covenant, in the, 
in the Old Testament, what's the language that's used there? It's not bride of Christ, but wife of God. So Israel under the Old Testament, that's Israel as the people of God, are referred to in several places being the wife of God. That old covenant has ended now and the new covenant has been put into place uh, and the church is composed of both Jew and Gentile and the church in the New Testament is referred to as the bride of Christ. And I gave you a couple of verses to look at to demonstrate that, a couple of Old Testament passages and one New Testament passage. Hosea 2, 19 through 20 says, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Now, betrothal in biblical days is somewhat akin to our engagement, except it had legal force. Uh, there was legality behind being betrothed. And God says to his people, Israel, I have betrothed you to me. There's a relationship, a special relationship between God and his people. Isaiah 54, 5 says, for your maker is your husband. Uh, what a wonderful way of putting it. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. And then we move into the New Testament in several places in the New Testament now. And I picked just one of them to show us here. In Revelation, same metaphor, but the language has changed slightly. Uh, the church is now referred to uh, as the bride of Christ. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So there has still a betrothal taking place between, between God and his people in the New Testament. When is that marriage consummated? When is it fulfilled? At the marriage supper of the Lamb, which takes place when? When Christ, when Christ comes back again, the marriage supper of the Lamb and that marriage is consummated. What a great thing for us to look forward to uh, when, we, when we know that Christ is coming and that, uh, that betrothal goes all the way back to the Old Covenant carried forward in the New Testament, the betrothal of God to his people, and now through Jesus Christ will be fulfilled. Now that's the language that Paul uses then when he says, I betrothed you to one husband. So, he has betrothed the Corinthians to Christ. It's like Paul is saying, I'm the one who introduced you to the person you're now engaged to and are going to be married to. And so I have a special interest in making sure that that betrothal is completed and that the marriage actually takes place. And he's making the point, I have fears that maybe there's a problem there. And he is warning them about these interlopers who have moved in and are preaching something different than what he did. And question number two, what is the knowledge 
uh, that Paul refers to when he says, I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge in verse 6. Here's verse 6. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, he concedes their charge that he's not a skillful speaker. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So what is that knowledge that Paul says he has that is as good as, and and he's actually going to argue that it is superior to that which the interlopers are teaching the Corinthians. And how did he get that knowledge? What's that? Uh, Yes. Uh, Beginning on the road to Damascus. And who taught him? Jesus. He was directly taught by revelation from Jesus. Uh, he's also taught in another way. Did you pick up on the other way? That we're all taught by, but, but the apostles taught in a very special way. By whom? By the Spirit. So, and, and I gave you some verses to look at there. And then we'll also look at the verses in Acts where Paul says he's demonstrated this to them. How could you have any doubts about it when I have demonstrated it powerfully? So here's Colossians 1. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. A mystery, you'll remember, in the New Testament is something which you could not have figured out. It's something that had to be revealed by divine revelation. God had to tell it to us. We never would have guessed it. We never would have figured it out. So here's this mystery that's been hidden for ages, and now it's revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Gentiles uh, are being incorporated into into the covenant. So we now have a new covenant with both Jew and Gentile included. Ephesians 1.9 says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. God has made it known to uh, Paul. Ephesians 3, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to be by revelation. That's the Damascus Road and the, and the events that, that followed that when he was taught personally by Jesus, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which, I was, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the apostles and the prophets were all informed and taught by the Spirit of God. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2 says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths 
to those who are spiritual. So he says the apostles have the teaching by the Spirit of God. Um, the, the Spirit was given to guide them into all truth and by extension to guide us into all truth. And so when the apostles taught, they taught as, as the inspired word of God. When they wrote that down in the, in the New Testament books, it was inspired, an inspired teaching, inspired by the Spirit of God. And so they should be believed. Their teaching should be accepted. And these interlopers, the ones that he calls um, pejoratively super apostles, you super apostles, uh, they are teaching something else than that. And Paul has a controversy with them and he has a fear, a divine jealousy, he calls it, for the Corinthians that they're buying this and that they're being deceived by this. Uh, here's, the, here's the Acts passages uh, that back up what Paul says when I, when I made it plain to you when I was there. He stayed a year and six months, year and a half. He's teaching the word of God among them. Acts 20 says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And you will remember from our study in 1 Corinthians, he said, I did not come to you with great swelling words of wisdom, but I came to you in the power of God and preaching the power of the cross. And that's what Paul taught. And that's why he was effective in Corinthians. Uh, he did so by the power of the Spirit of God. And that Spirit is now indwelling the Corinthians. And as we've seen in the verses we've just read, the Spirit is informing them about the truth that Paul taught. And if they were not allowing themselves to be deceived, he would teach them regarding these super apostles. Now, question three. In verse 12, Paul gives one reason why he preaches and ministers to the Corinthians free of charge. In 1 Corinthians 9, 15 through 18, he gives another reason. So why is he doing this? Why did Paul decide when he went into, the, into Achaia and he went into Corinth that he was not going to accept remuneration from them? Remember in uh, 1 Corinthians, he argued strongly that ministers of the gospel have a right to receive support from those to whom they minister. And, and we follow that as well. So they can spend their time uh, devoted to the word of God and to prayer and to, to the teaching of the things of God. So, and he argues that all the apostles, including him, have the right to expect that. Except in this case, he's refused that. So what does he give? Let me read uh, verse 12. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. And then, and, and there's also in Corinthians 9. So what were those two things, two reasons you found in verse 12 and also in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9. He didn't want to burden them. He didn't want to 
He didn't want to burden them. He said he was there to serve them, doesn't he? So I'm not burdening you with having to support me. I'm here to serve you. What else, what other reasons did he give? He wanted to uh, differentiate himself from the false. To differentiate himself from the false uh, apostles. And also, I think, according to verse 12, to put a burden on them, didn't he? Uh, They were claiming to be better than him. And he said, well, why don't you preach for free? Because uh, from what we've read here, they were insisting upon being supported by the Corinthians. And Paul was doing it for free. Well, if you're better than me, why don't you do it for free too? So he, he calls that undermining the claim of those who would like to claim that their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. And then another reason is given in 1 Corinthians 9. Here's the passage. But I have made no use of any of these rights, that is the right to receive support, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this in my own will, I have a reward. But if not in my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. What's he saying there? What's the other reason? What's the reason he's given here for foregoing the support of the Corinthians? Because he wants a reward, he says. And he says, I have to preach the gospel. There's no reward in preaching the gospel because I have been commissioned to do so. Necessity is laid upon me, he says. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He says, if I launched out to do this on my own initiative, then there would be reward in it. But that's not the case. I have a stewardship entrusted to me. And my preaching is to fulfill that stewardship, Mike. I was going to say, his rewards is going to come from the one who gave him the stewardship. Right. Not from people on this earth. Yes, absolutely. Very good. a better reward. It's eternal. Far better reward than being supported by uh, those to whom he's ministering. And so for those two reasons, he's putting a sort of a challenge to these super apostles. Why don't you do it for free instead of demanding that the Corinthians support you? And then I'm going to do it without burdening you. I'm going to do it in order to serve you instead. And then I am rewarded by the knowledge that I have done that. And uh, by the well done, thou good and faithful servant when he stands before God. Uh, And so he does not make full use of his right in the gospel. Discussion question number four. Uh, You've noticed that there's a great deal of irony in how Paul is writing these two chapters, 10 and 11. He uses the charges that the super apostles are making against him 
and he he boasts about those things. Now he's boasting ironically. He's not truly commending himself. Uh, he's he's about to do that, but in order to demonstrate the the truth of the apostleship that God has given to him. Uh, but he uses irony. Uh, he he when he begins chapter ten, he says. Okay, this is Paul writing to you. You know, I, Paul, me, myself, I'm writing to you. I'm the one who is very strong when I'm not around you in my letters. But when I get there, I'm weak and scared. That's me who's writing to you. That's his use of irony. He's taking the charges that are being leveled against him, and he's throwing them back in his letter here. Throwing them back is a challenge to them. So... Beginning in verse 13, he abandons all such rhetorical expressions and says straightforwardly how he views them. So he gets rid of the rhetoric and he just plain out says who these teachers are. So what are the descriptive terms he uses of them? What does he say they are? They're false. They're They're false and deceitful. Um, in verse 13, uh, they're false apostles. They're deceitful workmen. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And he goes on to say, well, no wonder they do that because they're servants of Satan. And that's what Satan does. Satan has the ability to describe himself as an angel of light. And so it's no surprise then, he says, if Satan's servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You think any such thing might be going on today in Christianity and evangelicalism even? Yeah, that's a good bit of it. We, we can see it. The reason we can see it is because we have the Spirit who allows us to see uh, that truth and that error and the comparison between them. Um, so what does he say uh, their end is? Destruction. Destruction. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to receive a just recompense for what they're doing. Philippians 3.19 says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. They have earthly motives for what they're doing. And, you know, all you have to do really is turn on the television. Uh, I think it's a great blessing that we're in church on Sunday and you can't see that stuff on television uh, that's based upon earthly desires and earthly things and not heavenly things. Julian. Can you go back one slide? Uh, what was the second to last question? How did they show themselves? They are uh, disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So they're in disguise, he says, as apostles and as teachers of the word of God. And he compares this to what Satan is adept at, adept at doing, and that is disguising himself as an angel of light. Um, and their end then is going to be this destruction. 
They're, they're posing, he says, in other words. Mike? I'm just going to say all of this points to the fact that we should not let just anybody become a minister of the gospel. Yeah. And there should be a difficult process to become a minister of the gospel. Right. And, and that's a wonderful thing about the PCA. Uh, it is a difficult thing. Is it, is it difficult, Brendan? Yeah. It's a real challenge. We don't allow just anyone. And some denominations do that. And uh, unfortunately, in some Presbyterians of the PCA, it's rather easy uh, to become ordained. And it's really critical that the leadership of our denomination really examine the seminaries. I, I agree, yeah. In some way that's significant. You know, when we look at, at, at church history, uh, many denominations have gone astray, and they're now, in my opinion, not even worthy of the label, label Christian. They still claim to be Christians. And you know which den denominations I'm talking about began in the seminaries. Uh, that that's where the the era crept in and began to be taught in the seminaries, and then the seminarians were ordained um, through a process that did not hold them to the truth of the Word of God, and and then it began to be spread, and the congregants, who by and large were pretty sound Christians didn't realize what was happening to them. Uh, God words were used without any force and, uh, and this foisted upon them. Paul is concerned that that sort of thing is what's happening in Corinth now. So uh, they do this to their shame and they will receive their just reward. So if we look at the entire passage, 1 through 15, we see three major points. There's first of all, a divine jealousy. Uh, Paul says, I am jealous of you. It is jealous with a divine jealousy. God is jealous for his people. It is a zeal that he has for his people. Uh, he talks about a free gospel. He preaches the gospel for free. And he addresses that in 7 through 11. And then he talks about the appropriate recompense for those who are the super apostles, those interlopers who are teaching the wrong thing. So as we go down through the passage, we see, first of all, he says, I need to speak to you foolishly for a moment. I'm going to do what I just told you not to do. I'm going to commend myself in order not to commend me, but I'm commending God. He is the one who commissioned me as an apostle. He's the one who gave me the message He's the one who told me to go to the Gentiles. I am doing that. If you reject me, you're really rejecting God. And that's why he is going to, uh, to launch out into this foolish speech. He says, I'm jealous with a divine jealousy because I betrothed you. He's like the friend of the bridegroom who's very concerned. He's the one who introduced uh, the, the bride to the bridegroom. And, and so he has this jealousy to make sure that that betrothal is completed properly. 
And then he mentions in verse 3 what happened in the Garden of Eden with Eve. Eve was deceived. And now it appears that the Corinthians are also being deceived. Um, And he he says here in verse 3, But I am afraid that the serpent, serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And then he cites their indiscretion in verse 4. He says, these people are coming and preaching another Jesus. And they're preaching another spirit. And they're preaching another gospel. And that's okay with you. Uh, You know, look at what's happening, he says. You have the spirit to help you to to see that this is another gospel that's being taught here. And so Paul has that fear of their indiscretion in Corinth. Uh, He concedes his inferiority in speech, but he claims a skill in knowledge. So how can you turn aside what I have uh, taught and what I have taught from my knowledge that has been received by revelation from Jesus Christ? And you know it's been effective because you were converted. I was the first one to come to Corinth. I taught you by the power of the cross, the things that I taught you, and you saw the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ at work in Corinth in your salvation. Now, I have that skill, and that's a better skill than the, than the interlopers are doing when they are commending themselves and saying, look at how great uh, skilled speakers we are in our, in our use of rhetoric to, to advance the gospel, another gospel that they're teaching to the Corinthians. He then talks about his preaching the gospel without support. Uh, five pairs of words, I think, describe these uh, verses. Humility and exaltation. Paul says he humbled himself. So there was humility there in not receiving support. But it was also done in order that they might be exalted. Uh, He says, I received support from other churches. And that was really sort of robbery. I took, uh, metaphorically speaking, robbery because I took from them in order that I might exalt you that I might teach you the truth to be of service to you, he says. And when he was in particular need, he really needed help. He didn't get it from the Corinthians. Brothers from Macedonia came and brought him supply from those churches. Um, In verse 10, he says, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. Now remember, Paul uses the word boasting here to mean uh, declaring how great something is. And this is a great thing that uh, that he's um, boasting in here. And he says, it's not going to be silenced by me. I am doing this for a reason. And that reason is because he was accused by the interlopers 
of doing it because he was ashamed of the fact that he was a false apostle and he couldn't bring himself to receive support. So he says, am I doing it because I don't love you? And he says, you know that I do. I was there. You experienced my ministry among you. You know that I love you. And then our last point, there's an appropriate recompense in verses 12 through 15 Um, he's doing this in order to undermine their boasting. And their boasting is is self-commendation. They're commending themselves and building themselves up in the eyes of the Corinthians. He wants to undermine that. Why don't you guys do it for free? Let's see how that works out. They were in it for earthly reasons. And then he identifies the problem, and he does so forthrightly. He abandons all rhetoric, and he says plainly, you are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising yourself as apostles of Christ. You are servants of Satan. Now, I think the main point that we get out of this is that verse where he says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. People are being deceived today by the works of Satan. We have the Spirit of God, and we need to depend upon the Spirit of God to try the spirits as to whether we are being taught the truth or not so that we don't fall into that same error that the Corinthians are about to fall into. Now, you'll remember Titus has been to Corinth. He has returned and met with Paul in Macedonia, and he has returned good news. The majority of the Corinthians have accepted Paul's instructions and have come back into the proper fold. And they are affirming the fact that they are uh, in Paul's camp. And they are affirming the fact that he has indeed taught them the truth and he is indeed a real apostle. There are still some, though, and and this passage is addressed to those that minority in Corinth who have still thrown in their lot with the interlopers. And he's dealt with that here and he has dealt with it very forthrightly. And now next week, he begins this, this foolish speech that runs into chapter 12. And I'll communicate with you during the week with some questions that will bring out um, those things also, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for guiding us through this. We pray again that you would lead us into all truth, that you would keep us sound and strong, that you would do so for us personally, that you would do so for our church, that you would do so for our presbytery and our denomination. We thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.